You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Hey, everybody. It's David O'Leary, and this is episode two of the Impact Investing Podcast. Today on the show, we have Philip Hayde, who is co-founder and CEO of Public Inc. Phil, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to have you. I'm real excited about your firm, what you guys are doing. We've had a chance to interact both you know, personally and professionally, um, even though we've yeah. really you know, just gotten to know each other in the past uh, few months. Can you give everybody the, just the quick intro and kind of elevator pitch on, on Public? Sure, happy to. So, yeah, so public, uh, well, I should say, first off, we're going to be 10 years old in October, which is kind of crazy, both exciting and like, yeah, I can't believe it's been 10 years. There are days when I'm super excited by it, and other days I think, God, what, you know, what's taken us so long to to get to where we are? Um, Public, we describe ourselves as a social impact agency. Uh, And we also have an accelerator, which we can obviously talk about. And really what that means is we're a full service marketing agency communications, but we're really a hybrid of consulting and creative agency, all designed to create large scale social impact. And what drives us in doing that is really this whole um, philosophy and this idea called profit with purpose. And fundamentally what that is, is that, you know, the old model was that business makes money and then depending on how philanthropic the individuals, the leadership is, or the company is overall, you kind of give back to community, right? And those things were separate. And our idea of profit with purpose is that, that we shouldn't be separating these things. That in fact, when you design businesses and nonprofit organizations to achieve both social outcomes, positive creation of value in the world, and design it to make money, when those two things are working together, you actually get more of both. And so profit with purpose is saying you don't have to give up one for the other. And so we want to prove that at a huge scale. Um, and we're, you know, we've had lots of success and we just want to keep demonstrating and moving towards a purpose-based economy, right? Where it can't just be about the profit motive. It also has to be about the creation of value. And so we're really excited and we're doing this work with all kinds of, um, you know, incredible uh, businesses and brands, which we can talk about, um, both in the, you know, in the for-profit sector, like Danone, like TD Bank, like Aviva, like Body Shop, like Converse and NBC and all kinds. But we also work with great nonprofits like World Vision, right? Like uh, Inspire, really. And, and it's all about how do you create large-scale social impact and not just awareness and not just messaging, but more importantly, actually, how do you move the needle on issues in a way where everybody wins? Yeah, so there's a lot I, I love about what you've said. For for context, we met, um, I guess, a few months ago now. Um, the team that I run at World Vision Canada, the impact investing team, we were looking for an agency to create awareness around the work that we're doing. And so we went out uh, with RFPs and, and public um, was one of those firms that uh, responded and we, we just sort of fell in love with. And so that's sort of the background that we've gotten to have some really interesting, high, very high level industry and philosophical discussions about profit and purpose. Um, mm-hmm. I love all that. It also becomes immediately clear to the listeners why um, somebody who's running an agency might be on the Impact Investing podcast, um, because <laughs> I don't think there are a lot of these, um, you know, Agent, I haven't stumbled across many agencies that have such a strong purpose and, and mission behind what they're doing. 
Mm-hmm. And and so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with all that. How far along do you think, I asked this question to Bill Young um, mm-hmm. when he was on around, you know, I dream of the day that my daughter uh, grows up and the world looks back on a, a time when a business's sole um, purpose was to maximize shareholder value at the exclusion of their impact on the world at large. And yeah. view that, that they view that as barbaric. <laughs> I'm curious how far you think we are away from that type of world. It's a great question. You know, I, I still think we're quite far away. Uh, I, it's hard to quantify if that is, you know, a generational thing. Like, are we, you know, are we 20, 30 years away? You know, uh, are we, is it less than that? Or is it more? I, it's, it's really hard to say, but I'll, I'll, this is what I can say. Uh, I have seen, I'm sure you have exactly in the same way, uh, a real shift in the marketplace over the last 10 years. So I mentioned that, you know, we'll be 10 in October. Um, as markers, you know, 10 years ago, when we were talking about this idea of profit with purpose and saying, no, no, we're not talking about corporate social responsibility. We're actually talking about social impact as part of how you do business. And not, not to the sort of social enterprise folks, but like more blue chip, right, companies. Um, that idea had zero currency 10 years ago. You could absolutely point to, you know, some of the Unilever brands, right? You could point to, you know, Ben and Jerry's. You could point, right? There were, there were proof points in the market, but those were really just the absolute tiny exceptions. Um, if you fast forward to today, there is a, uh, a much greater acceptance to this idea that there's nothing disingenuous about both making money and creating impact. In fact, they have to go together. Uh, lots of companies aren't there. I think, um, so I don't know how many years it's going to be before, you know, the, the, the vision of the dream that you have where your daughter's like, that's disgusting. Like, I, I don't know because it's, it's hard to know how, how quickly this stuff really accelerates. But as I said, there's been a big shift. And one of the interesting things about the shift is, uh, and I'd love to get your take on this, is that the, the, the rise of smartphones, of the, you know, the, the, technolo- you know, the 24-7 technology world that we live in, is one of the positive sides of it, because there's some negative, obviously, is it's accelerating the level of transparency, immediacy of information uh, that we haven't seen before in this world. And what that's doing from a corporate perspective in particular is it's, it's it's not allowing companies to separate these things anymore because you can't in the old model of corporate social responsibility it was seen as an offset right i run my business on one side and then and if i'm doing particularly if i'm doing some bad things right in terms of my labor practices or my supply chain right but you could then do nice things in the community that would give you this halo and people would feel good about your brand and they wouldn't necessarily know that you're doing these other things over here and or if they did they'd say well but they're they're contributing to kids with cancer and and so on and you can't separate these things anymore because people find out right away and they call, they call BS on it. And so that's an amazing part of it. That is actually accelerating the level of expectation, the level of demand for people saying, no, I actually want, I want companies, I want individuals to really demonstrate that they can create value. Uh, and I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is. Um, but we still are a long ways off because... Um, there's people are all of us as human beings, we are uh, hypocritical, 
and right and we make trade-offs all the time and we lack information and we can be lazy and i'm not saying any of this because i'm not i don't believe in the human spirit i'm a total optimist but there's a big say do gap between what people believe to be true or what they um, like about companies or organizations and then actually what their purchasing behaviors are or their level of you know volunteerism and so on so there there's still a big gap and um you know, I kind of fundamentally believe that people are, are fundamentally good. I also believe that people are fundamentally lazy. And so part of the acceleration of profit with purpose, I think, is that we have to make, uh, we have to reduce the trade-offs. The moment that I can eat well, which is what we're doing with Dinah, the moment I can eat well and it doesn't cost me more, it's just as accessible, right? Um, and I don't have to give up anything on flavor or cost to eat well, right? It's a win. The moment that um, I can buy clothes that I like, that are ethically sourced, ethically made, pay people a good wage, right? The moment that I don't have to make these giant trade-offs between how much I pay or how it's made is the moment I think the stuff becomes truly ubiquitous. And we get to the vision that your daughter, you know, you hope for your your daughter. But how fast that happens, I believe we're going to get there. Um, but how fast that happens, I don't know. But I think it'll accelerate much faster than the last 10 years. Yeah, right. The the rate of change is increasing. Absolutely. It does make it really hard to estimate. I mean, when you, if the, the sort of analogy from the investment world is you look at, I mean, I spent my entire world in the for-profit traditional investment world. And yeah. anytime I would look at a, a, you know, a table where you show compounding interest, it would always blow my mind just like oh right it's just and you know it intellectually and then you see the numbers you're like that's just so crazy that those numbers escalate so rapidly in those last few years because of the the the, so the same same thing here i think will probably happen i will probably you know overestimate how long it takes um but uh yeah i mean i love everything that you just said there i think that's exactly on the money i think you know as we were talking we we were discussing a little bit before the, the recording around people's BS radars are off the charts these days because that's right. You, can't hi- you just can't hide um, yeah. like and you could think, before. That's right. I don't think you, you know, and the really great companies and great uh, organizations, they don't want to hide. That's yeah. the thing, right? That it, it's as we were talking about, like it's very freeing. The moment you decide and you want to embrace transparency and you want to embrace accountability is the moment that actually, you know, the alignment is even stronger, right? Um, and I think it's those that are sort of, trying to move in the right direction, but they don't really want to lean into it. I think that's really hard to navigate in this world. The ones that are really leaning into it. And, and I recognize that that's hard to do for a lot of, a lot of companies. Um, but the ones that really are, it's, you know, I think you're seeing even a greater, a greater acceleration. You know, I look at, I look at companies like on the BDB side, like interface in the carpet company that's doing incredible things around sustainability, not just like carbon neutral, but actually, they are taking carbon out of the environment now with their carpets, which is incredible, right? Um, or you look at a, a, a retailer, uh, sorry, a clothing company like uh, Everlane that has embraced this idea of radical transparency, right? Fascinating. Like, and so it's, it's from like how they make those clothes and how they, and they're just, it's all part of their, their whole fashion idea. Um, you know, there's just, we're seeing that level. And those are really kind of more outlier. Patagonia is always reference and, you know, as an outlier, but you're seeing companies take some other examples, like in the whole food movement, you know, you think about traditionally the crafts of the world, right. And the camel soups and, you know, 
people are saying, I don't want to put poison into my body anymore. And so they're having to move in those directions and they're, and they're recognizing they need to be more open about it, more transparent about it, uh, because uh, people are now asking those questions. So the more you can lean into this, the more you're going to actually excite your consumers, the more you're going to excite your employees, and actually the more you're going to mitigate risk from a brand and reputation standpoint. And so there's really a nice alignment happening in terms of the wins that can happen for companies that are embracing this, right? And I think, again, we can talk about this too, but the flip of nonprofits who are embracing social enterprise, that when these worlds are coming together, um, I, I just think it creates more win-wins. And, uh, and that's a great, that's, you know, it's a great side to be on. <laughs> yeah. Again, I will reference the, the Billy Young chat because I know you, you know each other and, sure. uh, and it was relevant. But like this idea that there is this, arg- this, this argument still that happens. Mm-hmm. I think Bill referred to it as the Milton Friedman type argument, which is, listen, companies should maximize shareholder value. And if shareholders want to then go do good things with that money, that's their prerogative. Right. They own that they are the owners of these businesses. Um, but and and so he kind of makes the point that like you can construct an academically sound you know or logically sound argument there, but it just it you know I think in his words misses the forest for the trees. I mean, businesses are a collection of individuals that that have an impact in the world distinct from each individual's equity ownership in that business, and that you that right. like, you have to be mindful of that of that, and you can't completely say well you know each of us are collective individuals. We just you know. You know, this is this is our money, and we're going to ignore the fact that as a collective, this legal entity that is run by people and impacting the world is having negative impacts or could have a positive impact on the world, and we're going to just ignore those things. And so, I, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because I, I is coming from that world. I, I yeah, I do. I still regularly sort of hang in circles and and talk to people who have that that viewpoint. Um, and it's and yeah. it's a hard one to debate with somebody who who believes that. I mean, it's just to me, it's like well, well, philosophically, have very different views. Like, it's offense and defense for me. It's like one is you're just looking for the out. The other is find a way to do yeah. something positive. Well, that's right, and and I totally agree with you. And you know what's interesting about the whole Milton Friedman sort of mindset about the maximization of shareholder value is it, it really misses, I think some fundamental realities that um, the, that mindset's not being held accountable for. So one of them is that, um, to your point about this kind of corporation, as if it's not made up of individuals, right? And that co- companies live in communities, right? Um, and so to suggest that there isn't a, and I hate the word responsibility, because I don't want this to be about responsibility, right? I mean, I think profit's purpose saying, because the moment you go to responsibility, it's like, I ought to, as opposed to I can, well, right? opportunity. <laughs> Yeah, opportunity is better. So this idea that part of the, that I think is problematic with the mindset is it doesn't acknowledge that uh, these companies with individuals live in communities and how part of how they profit is through the benefit of what happens in a in community. And so if you, you know, the cost that you have to put on being part of community, right? The cost that hasn't been for so long on how if you're in use of natural resources, right? Which are so many companies that you're not putting a cost on that is basically allowing you to get away with something, right? That is part of actually the cost of doing business. So that's that's the one kind of, that's one flaw of it. Um, and the second is, and this is I think more recent, is with as you look at where the world's going, you look at population, right? Which is just, I mean, it's exploding, right? So 7 million people on the planet, right? So when you look at where, where that's going, 
to continue to operate the way that we are in terms of the consumerism, the consumption of goods, the creation of those goods, right? What we're doing from the, from the you know, in terms of the environment, the increasing uh, of climate change, and now we're seeing the impact on the poles, like all of those things, it's actually not sustainable. And so the fundamental difference, you know, and Paul Pullman, obviously a great global leader on this, talks about this a lot. But one of the big challenges, I think, with the Milton Friedman view is if you just about the maximization of shareholder value is you're not actually acknowledging, it's so short-termism, that you're not acknowledging that your business actually could be in peril. It depends on what industry you're in. But your business could be in peril in the future because it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. So the more that you actually embrace sustainability in its broadest sense, really taking care of people and engaging people, right? Taking care of the, the planet, right? Um, when you're starting to do those things, in no contradiction or opposition to profit, you know, you'll actually be further ahead. And, and that takes long-term thinking, right? That takes, it's like selling prevention. It's much harder to do. So if you have the short-termism mentality, then it's just all about how, you, how much money you put in your pocket today. But then you look at stats and you think, well, there's, a, they show, there's all this great research that shows, you know, on the Maslow's, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, once you're at a certain point in terms of revenue, uh, you know, income, more income doesn't make you happier, so then you think, what are you chasing? What's the drug that you're chasing? How much profits when you're making millions or billions in profit, how much more do you need if it's not actually contributing to your happiness and it's certainly not doing good things for the, for the world? What's it then for, mm-hmm. right? And so this, this is where I think these are the kind of the conversations that if you really dig into them, poke all kinds of holes in the notion of just the pure maximization of shareholder value. But to your point, David, like, but if you just aren't willing to question those, then, then you're just, you're right, it's offense, defense. You're just totally coming at it from a completely different mindset. But I think it's going to shift. I think we're seeing it with our generation of, of kids. I have so much hope for what I'm seeing on the Gen Zs, right? And, and the millennials too, and, and the shifts in the marketplace. Like it, it really, I do think, I hope it's going to be a generation and it's going to look very different. Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's interesting. I, I, to your point about this sort of, it, it, these things play out over the long term. I, I kind of like the saying, like, the truth always wins and it wins in the long run. In the short run, you can BS people and you can do the, the shortcut. You can have the negative impact on the community and the world at large and get away with it and extract profit for some period of time. But it catches up with you eventually. But, it, but those things, you know, I think what we see in the uh, for-profit world is the same thing you see in the political arena, which is the short-termism because of the the just the structure of the system, Pro, you know, companies, publicly traded companies report on a quarterly basis and analysts follow earnings and punish stock prices right. on a quarterly basis. And they respond to that and right. respond to four year election cycles. And so nobody's willing to invest in the things that'll pay off long term because they're not going to be there to, to suffer the results. So That's I think right. what that demands, though, is then that that the people um, who elect them, the, the the shareholders who, you know, uh, oversee the, yeah. the management of the company, uh, demand these things um and so that this like idea that the average person care and vocalize and vote with their dollars in a way that it's aligned with their values and what they think is important for the world is the thing is 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 what's needed in order to have this wholesale shift i mean i think there's some absolutely people talk about well you just need you know you need the, the big sort of power brokers to be the ones to, to make those decisions, the institutions, the pension funds. I think that's, it's wrong because they're limited by 
who are we, you know, who's our shareholder, who's our investor, who, and, and they're the ones we're ultimately responsible for. And so that then is like on the pension fund side, for instance, you just need a collection of individuals to say, this is important enough to us that investment manager, you have to take these things into account. Um, and yep. we want you to care beyond just the financial return. So, um, no, I absolutely. Wanna, I, it, yeah, no, go ahead. No, no, I was going to, I just, I, I agree with you and it's, you know, it's not a new idea, right? And this, I, this notion that when people actually exercise their, um, their engagement with the world, right? I was going to say sort of democratic rights, but that's only a piece of it. But when they truly do, I mean, there's huge, huge power in that, right? And everyone kind of believes it. But the thing is that can you harness enough people to put that pressure? But we've seen countless times politically, economically, when, when that's happened, it has shifted things. And sure, and sometimes change takes a long, long time. But it's it's all it's all there, um, and it is a shift in it is a shift in consciousness, and um, and part of what we're trying to do is is embrace, you know, obviously embrace capitalism, but embrace market force and not fight people from a behavioral economic standpoint and sort of a social psychology, like, like not fight the inclination to be a consumer, not fight the inclination to want to benefit yourself, not fight the inclination to derive you know, uh, uh, income, profit, et cetera, actually, but to use those as motivators to also the and, right, to do that in a way that's also creating value. Because if you, you know, and I always say, when all things being equal, which is rarely the case, but when you can actually present to a consumer, to a citizen, this idea that you can have both, then why wouldn't you choose the better option? But the critical piece of that is, the, the, the variables have to be pretty much the same because that's part of the trade-off right now is that people will tell you that they'll spend more money on a product if it's doing good. People will you know, consume with companies they think are doing good things, but then the real trade-offs are usually around price and quality right, and, and availability, and those things are material to your decision-making. So people then, for good and bad reasons, default to, well yeah, I want this, but it's too expensive and I can't afford it. And then, right, so that's why we have to level up. So which is what we have to demonstrate to the world that companies can create all kinds of incredible products and services that can achieve those both those things. And once we kind of hit critical mass with that, then I really think, um, I think we see the shift that, you know, you're working towards, I'm working towards, and lots of other people are. Yeah, I'll just I'll I'll just cap that off with you know circling back to your point about people are also fundamentally lazy. Um, I you know I think I think that's yeah. just like intellectually lazy, and and I'd apply that to the you know I was indoctrinated free market capitalism my entire career, and and it, the intellectual laziness is that oh right of course you have to trade off doing the right thing or doing good things or producing higher quality or being responsible about your environmental impact for profit, and it's like. Yeah. Where was it ever written that that's just a universal trade-off that has to happen? I mean, right. Right. Really, is there's no way, there's no creative way to. And what we're finding are that that when those people who do challenge that, you know, accepted logic, are finding no, there are all sorts of ways if you're creative about it about how you can, um, how you don't have to necessarily make that trade-off. Sometimes you do for certain things, you do, but it's not necessarily true. And let's challenge that and fight that and find those ways around it. Um, Absolutely. I, I circle back on. Um, can you give people a little bit of like a quick kind of um, background on how, how did you get started and where did how did you end up um, 
sure. you know, co-founding and, and, and running public. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's interesting. Like I, um, if you asked me, I think it's probably true of many people. If you asked me 20 years ago, <clears throat> are you going to be an entrepreneur owning a company? I would have said, I have no idea. It's not really in the cards right now. I have no idea. It's not something I aspire to. Maybe, because never say never to anything, but, you know, who knows? You know, if you had asked me, would you be an owner of a social impact agency, I would have laughed and said, what, you know, A, I probably would have said, what the hell is that? But B, I would have said, like, no, like, that's not, it's not, not what I do. Um, so I say that as a starting point because, you know, one, it shows you that, like, our, our careers are not linear. Um, but what is the through line, what is sort of more linear about it is I've always cared about and have been interested in how do you contribute to the public good and, and how do you contribute to creating positive change in the world uh, for people and, and, and obviously for the planet. And, um, and not because, and I say this to a lot of folks, not because I'm some do-gooder and pious and righteous and like, not at all. I feel a pull towards it that if I felt the same pull towards, um, you know, being uh, designing cars, right. Or, you know, being an electrician, I would just do that. So it's really kind of a bit of a calling. I believe in public service. I believe it's just sort of in my DNA. And so I don't take a lot of ombrage in that because as I say, I could have been my family, but, but also the, the nature side of it. So, um, so I've always been interested in social change and my trajectory really was, you know, I, I did a master's in international relations. Um, I was really interested in, in international development. I worked for an umbrella NGO called the Canadian Council for International Cooperation, which I found really interesting and in working with a bunch of international development organizations. You know, I moved from, migrated from that when I finished my master's to work at a a think tank actually, and doing sort of looking at a governance innovation in Southeast Asia and also in, in Canada, because I was interested in how does government and corporate and nonprofit work together to create better policy, better programs to, to tackle social issues. And, and then I tripped into this sort of world of marketing. Um, I met my future wife, and um, I moved to Toronto and I ended up at a, a research kind of short, small little research marketing shop called Decode, which was focused on youth. And I basically built their public sector practice, you know, smoking cessation, youth employment, those kinds of issues. And it was, and it was really interesting. And there I actually met uh, an owner of a social issue advertising firm that I found really intriguing. But this whole idea of advertising felt very foreign to me, but I was intrigued. And this is at the in 2000, I was really intrigued by the work they were doing on corporate social responsibility and working with companies on, right, designing those kind of strategies and programs and community. And I went there as a strategist and I ended up running the, the company uh, and I fell in love with marketing social issues. Uh, and I had no idea that I was actually a marketer. Uh, but when I realized that marketing is really it is social psychology. It is behavioral economics. You're figuring out which behaviors and attitudes, but you know, buttons you can push in people, not in my mind, not to sell them more toothpaste and Coke, but actually to try to drive their positive behaviors to improve the world. And I fell in love with it. Um, and what led me to public was sort of, I described these sort of itches. I really needed to scratch this idea of 
I don't want to create um, CSR where we're just creating these nice little programs that are separate from the business. I had designed a bunch of those and realized it doesn't scale. And so I really wanted to prove this idea, as we talked about at the beginning, right, that you can actually think about social purpose and impact as a business strategy. I also wanted to create engagement, not awareness. So there's a lot of awareness out there. And I always say, in particular to nonprofits, you know, given your relative size and resources, just to make someone aware of something is a lost opportunity, right? Get me to do something, no matter how small, and then you can make them more aware as a result. And so this whole idea of engagement, about trying to drive companies to think about purpose of the business strategy, and to, and to try and create our own things led me to create public uh, with my business partner, Paul, and we had two, uh, we actually had four uh, great investors to kick us off. Bill Young was one of them. Um, and uh, one of the co-founders, Mark Levine, Canadian, but lives in France, was a real impetus behind it. And we sort of set off. And so it's been this interesting journey to now, you know, co-founding and, and running a, a social impact agency. But I actually fell in love with how do you market issues, position issues, not just to message them, but actually to figure out how you can materially move an issue forward and how do you engage people in that and how does that align with your business? So it's been a really interesting journey and path um, that I continue to learn every single day. And so it's been, it's just been a ton of fun. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, a, that's really, uh, really cool. I mean, I, I, I think any, as you say, these, your career paths are nonlinear. It's uh, trying to yeah. ask me where I would have been now. I would there's never in a million years would I have said um, doing what I'm doing, and so I, I can relate to a lot of what you're saying. And I think probably <laughs> you know, I think all of us in this space because it's also just because it's such a new space and it you know when we were growing up right. things just didn't exist. So it, it was you know I don't know that any of us could have predicted um, what, what's happened. But um, can you tell a little bit more like how how big is public? Um, what types yeah. of um, give examples of maybe types of projects. We have favorite projects you've worked on. Um, yeah, sure. Like the type sure. of work you've done. Yeah, so we are. Um, I still think of us as a boutique agency. We are uh, You're stretching, thirty-eight I think, the people now. Of boutique, but yeah, yeah, but I, I would think of, I would I would classify as boutique as well. Yeah, so you are not thirty-eight like person operation, right? Thirty people. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we have 38 people. Uh, we really span from research and strategy and client management to uh, full creative team and what we call engagement, which is digital social communications. Um, so we have, you know, people with really eclectic backgrounds, too. I mean, it's part of, you know, we, we talk about trying to find T-shaped thinkers. Um, we don't want folks who just came from advertising or who just came from public policy or who just came from working in consumer package, you know, packaged goods. We want people who've actually had very different types of experiences because we are in the social change business. Um, so yeah, 38 people spanning that, that kind of range of services. And the kind of work we do generally falls into kind of one of three buckets. One bucket is we actually help brands embed purpose at the heart of their of the brand uh so for right now for uh danon we're actually working with them on launching a new danon yogurt product that's going to be completely purpose-based uh, we'd also do that work with nonprofits where they know their purpose but they want to refine it and hone it to really drive more measurable social impact and also help them you know drive uh revenue right and acquire you know 
more volunteers or acquire more donors. So we do this sort of embedding purpose or else refining purpose in a nonprofit. So we do that kind of work. The, the second kind of bucket that we do is what we call purpose platforms. And so there it's working with companies who are purpose at their core, but who want to be much more strategic about how they create impact. And we design for them their platform for what's the issue that they're going to stand up for over the long term, where they're going to go both long and deep on it, that is aligned with their business, where they can create real material impact in the world and actually real material business impact. Uh, and so we design those strategies and those platforms um, for companies like we're doing it for Converse in the U.S. right now, a global platform. Uh, we we designed for TD Bank their new uh, platform called the Ready Commitment, which is all around social and economic inclusion and creating a kind of more inclusive future. Uh, we're doing it for Aviva uh, right now, a really exciting platform we're developing. Um, we've done it for Maple Leaf Foods. We created a whole platform on food insecurity. So a lot of working with a lot of companies, as I say, to kind of really define not who is the charity they're going to partner with, not what's the cause marketing program or campaign, but really what is the issue and what kind of you know, long-term impact could you help to create? How is that aligned with your business and where do you start and what you're going to do about it? And then the third bucket we do is essentially you know, purpose campaigns. And again, trying to drive both business outcomes and social outcomes. Um, both for nonprofits and for for profits. So we've been we've had a ton of success with Body Shop on a part of a global campaign and uh, get a ban on animal testing. Um, it's been really successful both on the business side in terms of increase in sales in store, as well as uh, we're trying to move a piece of legislation through to get a to get a ban. And we've had you know over seven hundred fifty thousand people sign the petition and um, and a lot of engagement around that. Uh, we recently launched for NBC Universal in the U.S. a anti-hate and discrimination uh, campaign called Erase the Hate. Uh, we've launched recently for Inspire, an amazing Indigenous youth education organization, uh, a campaign to educate people and engage them around in, uh, investing in Indigenous education and why that's so important for the country. So we do a lot of campaign work. And so it really sort of falls in those um, three areas, both for for-profit and nonprofit. And, all, and oftentimes we do work, start to, you know, work kind of more on the strategic side, but then lends itself to then, you know, going downstream and creating kind of campaigns. And because we have the full creative team, we can develop all kinds of things to not just figure out how to engage people, but then create the, the storytelling uh, as part of that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, I mean, circling back to this so first of all, those are fascinating sort of projects and companies that you're working with. Um, I mean, for, for those who don't know, Danone recently became the largest B Corp in the world. And it was a really Corp. big deal yeah. in terms of getting traditional for-profit businesses to really embrace this idea of um, purpose and profit. And B Corp is a whole certification process. Um, it's a fairly onerous process that um, requires mm -hmm. uh, businesses to report on all sorts of um, kind of impact metrics. Um, Phil, you, I mean, you guys are a B Corp. But I'll, I'll get you yep. to maybe talk a little bit about you know what that what that meant for you guys. But what I find interesting that kind of thread I'll draw here to the point you made earlier, and we're talking about people's BS radars and having to be authentic. I mean, that was the one thing that I love, you know, many, uh, one of many things I love about public, but this, this idea of you guys are authentic in this. I mean, it, you, you could, you could have a marketing pitch to the outside world around how we help businesses with this stuff, type of stuff without actually embracing yeah. it yourself. Um, but you guys are a big, yeah. you'll talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Just looking at your workforce, it's, 
you know, full of gender inequity, uh, sorry, racial diversity, um, people from interesting backgrounds. Um, you have an accelerator where you incubate social enterprises yeah. from within, um, yeah. which I, yeah. I, I don't know of any other ad agency that does that. Maybe there are, maybe that's my own lack of knowledge. Um, Bill Young being a founding investor, these types of things. I mean, it just, it's evident right throughout the DNA and culture of, of the firm. Um, maybe just talk a little bit about what it means to be a B Corp because that, that is not a joke of sure. a certification. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And I really appreciate what you said. I mean, it, it is authentic because it's, it's, it's why we got into this. It's why Paul and I uh, co-founded this company. You know, we, we think of ourselves and see ourselves as, as change agents and we're doing it in a service capacity for the most part outside of the accelerator um, but it's because we believe in the power of business to change the world. And um, it's what drives us. And it's not that, you know, to the profit with purpose sort of thesis, we sure we want to make money, but we want to make money by creating impact. Uh, and sort of in that, you know, and truly in that order. So, um, it, you know, it, it's, it, it is, it's just really exciting. And the B core is a really interesting piece of it. You know, we, um, Early on when, with B Corp, because it's still relatively nascent and it's in the movement, you know, heard about it, said, God, I really aligns with our, our values. We really should become one. And, you know, small company at the time. And I don't know how many people we were, six or seven. And, you know, you're just, you know, every day is an adventure. And so we, we, uh, we weren't moving on it. And the person who was sort of running B Corp at the B Lab in Canada at the time, kind of Aaron Emery, kicked me in the pants because he's a really great guy. And he's like, come on, why aren't you a B Corp? We were having drinks one night and I thought, God, you, you know, and he did a really very kind way of almost shaming me into it. And I thought, God, you're right. We have to do this. Um, and you're, uh, David, as you said, like it's not a insignificant process. Um, I think it's quite frankly easier for small companies than it is for large companies. So to your point about Danone, I mean, that's a big deal for a North American, I mean, a global company, but for North America to, to become a, a B Corp. That's a that's a big big deal, um, but even for a small company, you know, like ours, um, it's it's onerous. It there's, you know, you have to really look at all aspects of you know how you operate. And what I actually loved about it was it forced and erased all kinds of questions that we weren't really thinking about. Maybe we had talked about it, but we weren't being as intentional. So if you know on the labor side, like it really does force to think about the kinds of people that you hire. And I would say, and I appreciated your comment, like I would say, you know, in our history, we haven't been as great on the diversity front, partly in terms of who we were trying to attract, who we thought we could attract. Um, we always believed in it, but we didn't put enough energy or time behind it. In the last couple of years, we've put a lot of energy behind saying, we fundamentally believe it's really important to have a very inclusive and diverse staff because we think it'll make our thinking and our doing better and it'll serve our clients better. Uh, and that has proven itself uh, absolutely true. Um, so we've always looked for diversity and experience and people's backgrounds, but now very consciously looking for diversity uh, from a gender, obviously always from a gender, but from thinking about uh, the countries that people come from, right? Their religion, their, et cetera. So um, it looks, it forces you to look at your labor practices. It forces to look at your supply chain. If you have that, obviously in the, our case, we didn't. It forces you to look at what kind of impact you're having in community. That obviously play a huge role. And it's where we scored, you know, really well. It forces you to look at your environmental practices. Um, and, you know, it, 
it, you have to score at least 80 out of 200, which doesn't sound great, but it's not easy actually to get to the 80 score. Um, And at the end of it, you actually have to, you know, into your articles, you have to change, make an amendment to your articles of incorporation that you are committing to business as a force for good. So it's not just about the profit motive and that you're going to commit to these these types of uh, uh, environmental labor, you know, obviously human rights, um, community impact and so on. Uh, and it's wonderful. And what I really appreciate about the B Corps movement is um, they're really, the, the leaders of it are really trying to, in some ways, lead from behind, that they want this thing to grow organically, that they recognize it's only as good as the people who are a part of it. Um, so it's quite decentralized that way. You know, they did this whole inclusion challenge over a year ago that really got us thinking about it and being much more intentional in our hiring practices, as I mentioned. Um, but it's, it's a nascent movement. And so I think the challenge with it is, you know, it's roughly, I don't know, 2,000, 2,500 B cores across the world. As you can imagine, most are in the U.S. and Canada, but you're seeing Europe really grow significantly. Um, but it needs to do a bit of hockey stick growth, right? We need to go from, you know, 2,500 to 250,000. Um, but it, but the, what's behind it and, you know, this fundamental belief that we talked about that it's business as a force for good doesn't mean you have to give up on profit. doesn't mean you have to give up on how you do your business. It's about amplifying how, you know, you just improve your business in a way that, that is beneficial to everybody. Um, so it's a very special movement. There's actually the B Corps retreats coming up next week in, in uh, or two weeks from now in New Orleans um, that gathers folks. And it's, it feels like it's a real community. Like they, I've never met a B Corps person who I didn't like. It's just kind of, you know, kind of crazy. Like everyone's there for the right sets of reasons. Uh, some are having more success than others. Um, but it's, I think it's really a, a movement to, beho- to behold, but it does need even more momentum that it has if it's really going to do the kind of culture shift that we were talking about uh, at the beginning of the, of the podcast. Yeah, I mean, it's a catch-22 because the, the, the standards are, are onerous. It makes it, a, you have to really have a big commitment and that's what makes it so wonderful and why you meet the, the, such a high proportion of the people you meet there are people you just get along with and love their, your tribe because they went through the same process to, to, and commitment to do it. But that's the thing that excludes more companies from doing it. I think about, um, you know, Nike for, for instance, right. Where they've now got, yeah. and I wanted to talk about this cause it's such so timely, but the sort yeah. of Kaepernick ad, and there's a lot of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I hear it in just conversations, water cooler talk, like a lot of people are just, Oh, it's disingenuous. And they say that, but you know, I've heard comments around, uh, you know, things like, well, Nike owns Converse and there's a Converse line of, you know, shoes that are like, you know, make America great again, Trump, you know, red Converse. And so like the same company that's mm-hmm. running the Colin Kaepernick ad is selling, you know, profiting from shoes that are targeting that, that demographic. And I, you know, I sort of look at that and say, well, I, I'm just an optimist. I believe that, you know, listen, it's a big company. They're going to have a lot of different business lines and that you can't change all of that overnight. And so, but, but I think like if Nike wanted to become a B Corp, oh boy, I mean, they're going to have to fundamentally look at their entire business and probably make a lot of changes before they would sort of reach that, that probably mark. And it's a big commitment. And so, you know, hopefully I would, I would just like to, you know, you know, I look at that and go, well, I'm going to reward them and, and, and sort of celebrate the fact that they're, 
doing positive things rather than criticize them for any contradictions. I mean, humans are just, we're all, if somebody analyzed my behavior, I'm sure yeah. they would find all sorts of contradictions. And I try to try to eliminate those things, but you know, we're not perfect. So yeah. I, I'm yeah, curious sure. what you think about the, the Nike ads in particular. I thought they were, were brilliant, but this is your mm -hmm. space and I'm, I'm curious for your perspective on it. Yeah. Um, I think I agree. I think they were brilliant. Uh, and, and here's why, and I want to address both why I loved it so much, but also I want to address uh, some really great comments you made, uh, that I think are the underpinning of the, the divisiveness, the people who like it and who don't, and what I think that means. Why I liked it so much is, um, they really leaned into an important issue and, you know, for the skeptics out there, they, you know, look, you could argue that this was a highly calculated, it was a calculated move, no question, but a highly calculated move that when they did their assessment, they were going to just sell more, more shoes, more, you know, clothing, uh, more equipment. And sorry, which by the way is like, sorry to cut you off, but like that is yeah. the point earlier is like when people vote with their money that way, it becomes the profitable thing, right. to do, which is fine. Uh, right? That's what we want. We want them to be able to profit from doing the right thing. Anyway. Absolutely. No, 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 totally with you. Absolutely. But I'm saying, so for the skeptic who looks at that, what I would challenge is to say, let's even assume that it was this highly calculated move purely to sell more um, and that they didn't even care about it. I just want to play that out for a second. Sure. Let's say they didn't even care about it. I believe that they did, but let's assume that they didn't. It was just this calculated move purely on the Friedman. We're just going to make, you know, we're going to sell more and increase market share. Um, what would be the upside to lean into an issue that divisive? Unless you really felt like, and you could predict that for the amount of people you're going to turn off, you're also going to gain more people, right? Because you can't make that conclusion without doing it and know that that's going to play out that way. And so what I love about it is, um, you know, for all the skeptics out there, they leaned into an issue. They have been talking about equality. They did some really interesting stuff with LeBron James last year. Um, you know, they do, uh, they've been behind uh, with the, you know, with the Nike, uh, the girl effect, right? They did that years and years ago. So there is an, the, the issue of equality has been actually very germane to Nike through the years. Um, so I believe that there's real authenticity to it. And they leaned into, so oftentimes companies are now responding to issues because as the public and the private merge, right, things that happen inside your company get put out into the public domain and the public domain impacts you. So, you know, the way that Dick's Sporting Goods responded to after the shooting in Parkland and saying we're not going to allow automatic rifles to be sold in our stores anymore, that was a reactive, amazing, and Walmart did a similar thing. Um, they reacted. But Nike actually leaned into it. They didn't react. They actually created a moment. They are the sponsor of the NFL, all the gear at the NFL. Uh, right? So they really leaned into it. So to me, that took real courage. That's real leadership on an issue that they really care about. Uh, and supporting someone like Kaepernick, who I think has really stood up for um, what he believed in police brutality, right? And so that side, to me, I think, wow, like when we talk about uh, clients and the courage to really lean into issues, um, knowing you're not going to make everybody happy. I love it for that. I really love it for that reason. Just to support that quickly, yeah. they, like Ka Colin Kaepernick had started to fade from the headlines. They, they took that yeah. and thrust him back into the headlines when they Ab it absolutely. started to move on and forget about it. 
Absolutely. So the national anthem stuff has still been kind of making headlines every time the, the new season starts, but like Kaepernick and that just, it just started to fade. I felt like, and they yeah, just pushed it. him back in. So it supports what you're saying Absolutely. around. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, and you look at how they look at how Nike, but look at what Nike did. And then look at how the NFL has, has basically responded by not responding. Right. Mm-hmm. So they've really, they've taken hold of an issue. And I, I say to companies all the time, when you actually know, the issue or issues that you care deeply about and the kind of impact you want to have on them, it helps you navigate both proactively and reactively. It helps you navigate this crazy, divisive, immediate kind of world that we live in. So absolutely. Like I, so I think it was a really bold, courageous thing that I think came from a very authentic place. Um, the other thing I want to comment, though, on is that Nike is absolutely flawed. There has been all kinds of reports about... Uh, sexual discrimination and harassment in the company. There's been a lot of turnover at the senior executive ranks because there was a lot of kind of guy jock culture that was not conducive to yeah. supporting and uh, and women having more leadership positions in the company that they deserve. So that is in contradiction to the Kaepernick and leaning into this as part of 30th anniversary of Just Do It. Um, Nike has done incredible things on sustainability. In fact, they don't talk a lot about it, but they're a real leader in it now. Um, but you, when you look at the company, there's lots of things that they're doing wrong. But to a point, David, that you made, like, if you're going to say to companies that you can't do anything until you are perfect, right? Until you're so buttoned up, you've got it all, nobody will do anything. And imagine as the analog in our lives, we, if we're not allowed to contribute to community, if we're not allowed, right, to create something that new until we're so perfect, in our own lives, right? That there's no contradictions, there's no hypocrisy. No one would do anything. I said at the beginning, I mean, I am absolutely a hypocrite in that I have a strong set of values just like you. I try to live my life as ethically as I possibly can. I try to live environmentally. I do some things really well. I mean, I take the subway to work every day. We recycle. I'm conscious of turning off the lights and not running water but then I take long showers, right? If it's more convenient, I'll get in the car for certain things, right? Like this is what I mean about being a, a hypocrite and, and, and contradiction. It's hard to live a perfect life. Nobody can. And the same is true with companies. And so I think it's about engagement. It's about leaning into issues. It's about doing it with authenticity and transparency, but knowing that you're still going to be flawed. And if people want to look for those flaws, you can find them. So what's the standard we want to hold up? Do we want to keep moving things forward? Do we want more companies to take leadership positions? Do we want, you know, you look at BlackRock and, and the announcement of their CEO months ago, but if you want to scratch on BlackRock, they're nowhere close to what they're talking about in terms of saying, now we're going to evaluate all of our investments, right? They're nowhere close. So, but does that, should that hold back from actually making these comments and statements and trying to move in the right direction? So, I think for all the cynics and the skeptics out there, I always say, you know, I think you're putting too fine a lens on how you want people to behave in the world. And if you're going to let, you know, perfection be the enemy of good, then I, I don't know how anybody moves forward. And so that's why I love what I love what Nike did. And I love what Levi's did, right, in deciding they're going to tackle gun control, right? Um, you know, more, more companies, we need more companies. It can't just be the Patagonians of the world taking the president to court right? We need more blue chip companies willing to take stands. And I see it. I mean, we work in Canada, the US, and we've just opened a New York office. Um, 
And it's exciting to work down here because I see more kind of bold, courageous leadership in the US than I do in Canada. And it's not to suggest that there aren't courageous leaders in the C-suite in Canada, but I don't think we have the same culture of it. And I think we need to see more of that. Um, I want to see Canadian companies do what Nike did, right? And be willing to take to take hits for it. Uh, and we don't see enough of it yet. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think that's, I think that I think when people are critical of something like, you know, a Nike does something positive, even though they're flawed or, any, you know, anything that you sort of some positive step, some positive thing, and they look at that and they go, oh, right. And they point out all the flaws. I think that reveals more about their attitude and mindset than it does about Nike's or whatever the organization they're talking about. I mean, the world is just like, I think, I think largely like most of the world is bifurcated as either, you know, optimist or pessimist, offense or defense. Yeah. And like, you're just, you're, you're a pessimist or you're negative. You're somewhere on that spectrum. And there's obviously gray areas in between, but like at a point you hit a fulcrum and you're either slightly more positive or slightly more negative or a lot yeah. more negative. And, and that's just, yeah, you can choose to view the world that way, but it seems like a pretty miserable way to that's live it. your life. Um, Agreed. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't then point out the, right. the contradictions. Right? There's nothing wrong with pointing out the contradictions because that, in fact, will make Nike and all these companies better. Yeah. But while you're pointing out the contradictions, it's also important to really support and praise for the good that they're doing as well. And you're right. And I, and I think there's this other, you know, I say this a lot, you know, um, companies are big social actors in the world. Um, and I think, you know, for nonprofits, they have to pay attention to that, right? Nonprofits don't have the monopoly on doing good anymore. And so part of it is, is shifting a mindset about, about do you believe that companies can help to change the world? And I think if you're, to your point, David, like if you're on the side of believing that, if you're on the side of optimism, if you're on the side of understanding that change takes a long time and it's those incremental steps as well as the big grand gestures as well, like then I think you're willing to look at and really praise those great initiatives while at the same time having you know a critical eye to point out where there are flaws to improve it but you're coming at it from the point of view of trying to improve trying to make better trying to move it forward and i think if you're on the side of not believing that corporate is going to be fundamental to changing the world then that lens you know amps up the cynicism and the skepticism it's obviously not the side that i'm on um but you know to each their own, as you say, and it's just how you want to engage with social impact. Yeah, I mean, I think that's real. I'll just sort of end it with I think that's really a great distinction to make. I mean, you can be, you know, you can, you can be exercise a critical eye without being cyn a cynic. I think there's sometimes it's, it's not clear to people where sort of being, you know, healthy criticism or healthy skepticism versus cynicism. And, and so, blending into cynicism really is where things get. So I really appreciate that you kind of brought up that distinction because being objective and, and skeptical is, 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 is good. Um, anyway, with, mm -hmm. I, with that, I think, we, I think I could talk to you all day. <laughs> We've had yeah, longer so conversations. Much fun. Uh, it is a lot of fun. So much I really fun. enjoyed the thoughts on that, Phil. Um, and, and maybe we'll have to have you again at, uh, on to talk uh, about other issues as they kind of arise and are, are in the public eye. But yeah, uh, thanks I'd a lot for, uh, for joining us today. Thank you. I would uh, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I'd love to chat. Well, we will continue to chat, but I appreciate being on this podcast. I love what you're doing. And, uh, um, and uh, yeah, I look forward to the next one. Thanks. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. 
And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also, you can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, Hey Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.